All right, well, we're in the Gospel of John. Today we're just going to look at, we'll briefly talk about the purpose. The purpose statement is actually an interpretive problem, so we'll talk about that in more depth next week. Today we'll talk about the purpose statement briefly. We'll talk about authorship. How do we know who wrote the Gospel? And then we'll talk about John himself. Uh, the Gospel of John has kind of a unique position. It stands out among the four. The other three Gospels are synoptic Gospels. They kind of cover the same material. Uh, this one stands out as being unique. And it's considered by many to be, for lack of a better word, superior to the other Gospels. Um, that's not my word. That's Martin Luther. The Gospel of John is unique in loveliness and of a truth, the principal gospel, far, far superior to the other three, and much to be preferred. This was the gospel John MacArthur started his ministry with. He said, if I'm going to start preaching here, I want them to get to know Christ, and this is the gospel that they can see Christ through. William Hendrickson says, the gospel of John is the most amazing that was ever written. If you want a good place to go study, just open up the book of John. It's a good place to go. John is unique in that he does give us his purpose. Kind of like Luke in Luke 1, John gives us a purpose statement in his gospel. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he provides us a purpose statement. As I said a few minutes ago, the purpose statement is, there is an interpretive challenge on it, but I'm going to give it to you up front. We'll discuss the, the interpretive challenge later. John 20, verses 30 through 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. One of the key elements of the Gospel of John, we'll see next week, is the signs that he shows you. And if you read through the Gospel of John, you'll see this is the first sign that Jesus performed. Anybody know what that was? Yes, the wedding feast at Cana. Then he'll go and say that a second sign. These signs are intended so that you would believe. He wants to show his readers that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he wants his readers just to focus on the person of Christ. One writer said that the key to understanding this gospel is this. It is the chief of the gospels, and one can only understand it by reclining on the bosom of Jesus. Now, I said that's unknown because it was cited in another book as being unknown. <laughs> so I wasn't able to trace back the quote, but I thought that was a great quote. Um, so if this book is all about showing you Christ and showing you the person of Jesus, the author of this book becomes important. It becomes important because you can't just take, you know, if someone writing in the third century and they're trying to write about the life of Christ, doesn't really help. We need to know who actually wrote the book. The problem is the gospel is written anonymously. He doesn't tell us who he is. He doesn't even mention his name. Every time you see the name John in the Gospel of John, it's referring to John the Baptist. He doesn't identify himself, but in John 21, verse 24, this is the disciple who's testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Kind of gives you the impression that the author knows the people he's writing to. And the people he's writing to know who he is. So what's some of the external evidence? What's some of the evidence that this gospel was written by John? It's named after him. That's pretty circular in the logic. I'm just going to say. That's brother. Well, that was the end of the class, so thanks for coming. <laughs> um, one of the earliest writers who talked about the author was a guy named Eusebius. Anybody heard of Eusebius? the church historian. He wrote Ecclesiastical History. He was writing around 324 to 325. Here's what he said. 
speaking of the Gospel of John, His Gospel, which is known to all the churches under heaven, must be acknowledged as genuine. And a few lines later, again, he's speaking of John, he said, it is the undisputed writings of this Apostle. The context here is he's talking about the Apostle John, and that is proven here. But of the writings of John, not only his gospel, but also the former of his epistles, has been accepted without dispute, both now and in ancient times. Ancient times. Is it misspelled? Before AD. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. For, for us, we're like that you're in ancient you're times. times. <laughs> but for him... Christ was only 300 years before him. So ancient times is, from our perspective, that's a pretty short period of time. But notice he says, it is without dispute. Nobody in the early church questioned who wrote this book. This is without dispute. And he says, speaking of ancient times, um, I have some ancient times to show you. P52. This is the oldest manuscript that we currently have. At least the oldest Greek manuscript, let me say it that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fragment. It's about the size of a credit card. It contains John 18 and parts of verses 31, 32, and 33. It dates back to the second century, somewhere around 150 to 180. Speaking of ancient, I thought I'd just throw that in for fun. Okay. Origin, writing even earlier than the church historian. The Gospels are the first fruits of all the scriptures, but the Gospels, that of John, is the first. I, I put Gospels, it should be Gospel. That of John is the first fruits. Origin, writing in the second century, said this book was written by John. This has been undisputed throughout church history. Nobody questioned this. But if you read the commentaries today, it certainly sounds like it has always been questioned. Why is that? I broke this quote up because it's kind of long. Philip Schaff, another church historian, the testimony of antiquity, both orthodox and heretical, is the authenticity of John's gospel is universal, with the exception of a single unimportant sect of the second century. One little sect in the second century said, we don't believe this. And by the way, that little sect was heretical. Schaff continues, The church never entertained a doubt of its authenticity until the end of the 17th century, when it was first questioned by the English deist. But its genuineness was vindicated, since which time its authenticity has been one of the most fiercely contested points in apostolic history. He points to the 17th century and says the English deist disputed this, but that's not when the real dispute began. That's just the first group recently to dispute it. The real argument began not in the 17th century, but in the 19th century. Anybody know what happened in the 19th century? Liberalism. German higher criticism. Things like form... Things like form criticism, redaction criticism, where they go and they just make assumptions about the text and they try to tell you where the text came from without evidence, based solely on how it's written. Uh, D. Edmund Hebert, the last long quote. The rejection of the fourth gospel in the early centuries of the church by some heretical groups is of little importance. Their efforts to discredit the fourth gospel proved ineffectual, and any appeal today to their futile efforts to discredit the traditional view may be regarded as grasping at straws. Apostolic authorship of the fourth gospel was universally accepted in the Christian church from the beginning of the third century until the 19th century. Nobody questioned the gospel of John and who wrote it. Until then. Why would the argument begin anyhow? I mean, what would be the purpose? What's the purpose? I mean, for the purpose of knowing who wrote it would, would tell us a little bit more of their character how they right or how they think but why would there be such you know people yeah. going after this and say this ain't he didn't it's not right the higher critics would say they do it because this is scholarship and they view it as research but remember how we were talking about the synoptic problem 
and the kind of the the circular reasoning, the logic that's used, they use the same thing here. And they, they make assumptions, and we'll see some of them in a minute. They read the text and they say, well, this can't be what it says because, and then they give some reason for it. But they would say they're doing it because it's good research. I would say they're attacking the Bible, but that's... <laughs> Yeah, but I, I point that out because if you go and pick up a commentary on John and you even pick up someone that's really good, they'll make it sound like this is a big, big debate and this has always been questioned and the reality is it's just not true. The majority of church history, this was never questioned. So what are some evidences inside the text, some internal evidence that we can look at to see who wrote the text? The end of 20 is his purpose statement, and the whole of 21 is about Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who shall remain nameless. And at the end of that, this, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. I didn't email you my notes. How'd you get them? I read, I read, <laughs> I read this already. Oh, Once okay. or twice, yeah. maybe. Yeah, that's exactly right. Let's start... Closer to the beginning, John 1, John 1, verse 14. We'll kind of build an argument here. There are three main passages that are used to talk about the author. John 1, verse 14 is the main one. And these are the only three passages I'm going to have up on the, the screen here. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glories of the only begotten, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice he refers to us and to we. So that makes him apostles. Whoever's right. Well, that makes him a disciple at first, right? No, I think this makes him be... apostle no matter who, from this point on, because, and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Mm -hmm. yeah. There were lots of people who saw his glory, but they were not apostles. Yeah, but they didn't write the book. <laughs> Got you on that one. <laughs> I'm looking at the, the the requirement to be an apostle, and nowhere in there does it say you must write a book. It's true. That's true. I mean, Thomas was an apostle. Oh wait, there is a book of Thomas. Details. 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 I'm sorry. All right, let's go. So, <laughs> sorry. Um, there are some who say, yeah, but he's using us and we, but he's not referring to himself. He's referring to the Christian community around him. So he's really saying the Christian community saw Jesus and saw his glory, not necessarily referring to himself. What's the logical problem with that argument? There's something very obviously wrong with that argument. He said, he said among us. He's referring yeah. to the disciples. Yeah, I yeah. my case, us. Yeah, that's the biggest problem. These pronouns would be, it would be unusual to read us and we and take it as being referring to anyone other than himself and a group of people. It would be unusual to say us and exclude yourself in it. The author wants you to view him as a witness. That he personally was an eyewitness to the events that he's writing about. So did you Greek this out and word test it out and it stayed us all the way? No, he doesn't always say us. No, I'm talking yeah. about this particular one. Yeah, that's what the Greek text says. Okay. It uses a first-person plural pronoun. Concordances are awesome. I, I'm, a, I'm a layman. <laughs> Am I a chocolate? Yep. <laughs> All right, move on. <laughs> Sorry. We got some jokers today. We should be sitting in the back. <laughs> <laughs> With a dunce cap. <laughs> That can be arranged. <laughs> okay, so how can we know that he was an eyewitness? We don't want to just go off a pronoun. Well, he gives specific times of events. John 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming. John 1, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. John there would be John the Baptist. Um, chapter 3, verse 24. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Why is that important? It's because he's talking to you about chronology. And he understands that certain events happen before other events, and he can distinguish between the two. 
if he was writing secondhand information, it would be a lot harder for him to do that. Uh, chapter 4, verse 6. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's the kind of information that a witness would provide, but not necessarily someone who's writing secondhand. Uh, John 13, verses 1 and 2. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Again, he knows when these events occurred. He can give you the timing of the events. Uh, John 19. This one's a little bit more gruesome, but it's still important. John 19, verse 33. Would someone be reading, willing to read 33 and 34? Go ahead, Jessica. A little bit more gruesome, but he knows specific details of what occurred. And he can give you those specific details. 35 is where. That was the meat. We stopped at 34. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, verse 35 is right next. That's the second big verse that people point to. So he wants us to see him as a witness. Let's go to John 19, verse 35. Would someone be willing to read 1935? He who saw him has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Okay. Thank you. Uh, traditionally, this is viewed as the author referring to himself. And I said traditionally because... Up until the 19th century. Yeah, they're back. Um, they've come up with all sorts of different views on who this could mean. And I'm just going to give you three of them. This is kind of like an interpretive challenge, but not. Uh, some say the author is pointing to himself. That would be the traditional view. He's pointing to another person, or he's pointing to God. I think the third option here is the least likely, just because the context just doesn't support it. The context isn't talking about God in any way. The first two have the most support and are equally plausible. They're equally plausible because he uses a pronoun that could refer to other people and usually is used to refer to other people. But it can also be used to refer to himself. But here's, I think the first one is going to be the best answer that's pointing to himself. Here's why. If he wanted to write and give a witness or a historical account of what was going on, and he wanted to point to somebody else and say, this person over here witnessed this, why didn't he name his source? If he wasn't there to see it himself, why didn't he say, hey, Ted over here told me this is what happened? That would have made his argument a lot better. He should have identified who he's referring to. But if he wanted to be a witness himself without drawing attention to himself, this is the perfect way to do it. He uses a plural noun that refers to someone else. He doesn't use his own name. And then he writes this and says, um, I forgot the verse. Yeah. And he says, this is the one who has seen and testified and his testimony is true. Uh, when you take that and you mix it with John 1 verse 14, you guys remember the opening of 1 John? I'm writing you children to... Yeah. The opening of 1 John, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He's writing as a witness there too. And he uses the 
the plural pronoun to refer to himself and to the other apostles and disciples. And it's not unusual for John to use the pronoun, this pronoun that usually refers to other people. He used it in the same way in other locations. John 1.18, we don't have to look at these. John 5.39, John 9.37. There's really no grammatical reason that you would exclude this first one as being the right answer. Especially when you pair it with that you also may believe and then go to chapter 20, and that's the purpose of the book. And then in 21, he refers to a third person, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That, I believe, is the he to whom he is referring up there. So if, if he's not the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's a disciple, and Jesus loved him. You're reading my notes again. Next verse. Yeah, guess what our next verse is? Go over to John 21. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Someone knows their, uh, someone knows their Bible. That's good. John 21, verse 24. What's going to read 24 and 25? All right. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Thank you. Of all the texts we've looked at so far, this is the most highly debated one out of them all. Anyone want to render a guess as to why they debate it? Same group of people. It's third person. He doesn't call himself. Same group of people. These higher critics. And they claim this is not original to the text. That John, the author, did not actually write these verses, that these were added later. There's no textual evidence to support that claim. Yes? I, I believe, again, because I was, I was, well, I believe that this is the way the language taught back then. Yeah. This is how they, you know, language evolves. I mean, from the time of 1960 till now, I mean, we have words now that... Dungarees, you would never use the word dungarees. You just say jeans. No, Dungarees was na nautical, and I was in the Navy, so no problem with that one. <laughs> but, but, but the, the, the point is, is, you know, language changes, and the use of language and how it changes. In, in American language, all the words have flipped. You know, before it used to be horse, see that, now it's see that horse. Yeah. So I believe that this is the way it was spoken in those days. Yeah, and I would agree with you. Um, the language is consistent with the Greek of that time. This is from higher criticism, and they say it just doesn't seem to fit. Why would he do it this way? And I say, well, this was added later. Donald Guthrie said, there is no evidence that this statement was not an original part of the gospel and must therefore be regarded as valuable witness on the matter of authorship. So if you read a commentary and you read this was not part of the original, just go ahead and dismiss that. That's not actually true. But notice he says, this is the disciple, and this is what Lance was referring to. Who is he talking about when he says, this is the disciple? To learn that, you need to go back up to verse 20. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? The disciple who was following them is the disciple that he's referring to when he says this disciple. The disciple that leaned on Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and the disciple that was following Jesus and Peter. This is the disciple that wrote the Gospel of John. Everybody follow the logic there? So the disciple that Jesus loved is the author of the text. Okay. So who is the disciple that Jesus loved? Jesus. <laughs> That's true in one sense, yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just playing with you, but no, it, it had to be John, right? It has to be John. Uh, the author limits our, our list of possibilities. John 21, verse 2, gives us a list of possibilities. All the people who are present in this scene, Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, 
and two others of his disciples were together. Well, the other two disciples wouldn't be it. That doesn't really help us. But the only other ones he doesn't specifically name were the sons of Zebedee. He didn't give them their names. Yeah. Which also minimizes him while maximizing Christ. Right. So the author has to be one of these two. And we know that the author doesn't name himself in his epistle. So you can throw Peter out. It's not Peter. And we know this particular disciple who wrote it was at the Last Supper, so he has to be one of the twelve. And we know he leaned on Jesus, and he asked Jesus who would betray who would betray you. This disciple is also a very close friend. Whoever this author is, is a close friend of Peter. He's pictured as being with Peter a lot. Uh, John 13, verses 23 and 24. Would someone read 13, 23 and 24? There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. There you go. There's... Go ahead. There's Peter and this disciple speaking to each other in John 20. The women go to the tomb to see um, what's happened with the Lord. Peter and this disciple also go. John 20, verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter and this disciple hear that the body of Jesus is gone and a foot race ensues. And they do what guys do. They got competitive. And they start bolting to the tomb to see who can get there first. John 20 verses 3 and 4. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. This is a nice way to say, I won the race. Which surprised me because Peter was more the man-man guy. Yeah. Apparently he wasn't a track runner, though. No. What were you going to say, Mary? No, I was going to say, just if you go one more verse in John 13, it, you know, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, this is the, back to that reference of, said to him, Lord, who is it? So this that narrows it down to, this is the disciple whom Jesus loved as well, because that pairs those two up. Yeah. So it, it just it just keeps further drilling down to there's really only one. Yeah. You you get to a point where you, there's just no argument left. Um, they both run to the tomb. The disciple who wins doesn't go into the tomb for some reason. He just waits. And Peter arrives. John twenty verses five through seven. Peter gets there. He looks in the tomb. He sees the linen wrappings. In one area, he sees the face cloth rolled up in another area. John 20, verse 8, So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and he believed. These are details only someone who was there would be able to tell you. He wouldn't be able to say this if he was not a witness, if he wasn't a part of it. Well, he wouldn't be able to say that he believed, because, I mean, you say you believe, but I can't say you believe with certainty. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and he's giving testimony he's saying, on his own heart, right? Yeah, he's saying, I saw it, and then I believe. Right. Right. I think there's some key points on that, too, yeah. because uh, later on in, in the Word, it talks about uh, we didn't get to see him. And so we're believing stronger by faith than, than, than a man like John. Yeah. Yep. Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. That's what he told Thomas. This disciple would have to be part of Jesus' inner circle. He would have to be a part of the inner circle. That would exclude Thomas and Nathaniel. That leaves John, the son of Zebedee, as the most obvious choice. John is part of his inner circle. I'm just going to give you some... Well, let's do this. I got one question. Did yeah. Peter ever write a book? I don't think so. First right? Peter? Second no. Peter? Not a, not a gospel, but yeah, he wrote first and second. Okay. And he yeah, was, I, I was, on that he was instrumental in the writing of Mark. 
Uh, he actually provided the information to Mark. Uh, Mark 5, verse 37 Speaking of Jesus, and he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of John, of James. Mark 9, verse 2, we're looking at this inner circle. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on the mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. There's that inner circle getting to see the glory of Christ. Mark 14, Verse 33, if I can find the verse. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves all the other disciples kind of outside the garden, and he takes these three into the garden with him. And only they see him pray and hear, see him become distressed. This is that close-knit inner circle. Carl, did you have something? Well, you know, with what you're talking about, it's very evident to me that John, that whoever wrote this book, wanted it to be about Jesus, mm -hmm. period. Well, by him not making it, it well, if he would be alive and see what has happened since then, he would be very disappointed that because he didn't put his name in there, that he was the one that was writing it. The focus has come back to him. Well, who actually wrote this? You know, it, it's it, it's working against it to a certain extent. But yeah. he wanted it to be about Jesus, not about him. Yeah, it's kind of shifted the argument away, right? His main point was get you to look at and focus on Christ, and now people are focusing on, well, who's the author? And that was the whole point he didn't want them to do, right? And he used himself kind of as Ezekiel. Woe is me, I'm not worthy to even yeah. you know, address this. But yeah. yeah. But can you imagine being in those days and and all of a sudden you meet John who knew the, who knew the Christ? I mean, it would be, John would automatically be elevated just in people's eyes. So he has to de-elevate mm -hmm. for this. Yeah, yeah. Um, when the apostles are listed, there's a list in Mark 3, 16 and 17, there's one in Matthew 10, 2. In both of those passages, they're broken up into groups. John is always listed in the first group, and he's always listed with Peter and James. That's that inner circle. I'm curious, is the order always the same? I haven't looked at the order, but... It's pretty close. I mean, there's only three people in the group, I know, so... But, I mean, if yeah. you keep seeing the order, then there would be yeah. some kind of... Peter is always first, and I think He's James comes next because... See, that's yeah. what I'm saying. He would consider the rock, so I would imagine Peter being mentioned yeah. first. He, he was the first among equals. He usually operated as the, the kind of the spokesperson, and that didn't always go in his favor. <laughs> um, but he, he was... The first among equals, I think James would probably be mentioned next because it seems like he was the older brother. And so he would be mentioned next. Peter and John are selected to prepare the Passover meal, Luke 22, verse 8. After the resurrection, they're still closely associated with one another. In Acts 3, just for the sake of time, I'm only going to show you two verses in Acts 3. Uh, where am I at? Oh, Acts 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were giving up. We're going up to the temple in the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Jump down to verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called uh, portico of Solomon, full of amazement. There's Peter and John still together, still doing ministry together. You can go to Acts 4, verse 13. Acts 8, verse 14. In Acts 8, verse 14... Peter and John are sent as delegates to Samaria from Jerusalem. It seems like they had their base in Jerusalem and they were being sent out from there. Paul in Galatians 2 verse 9 calls Peter, James, and John pillars of the church. And well, that kind of leaves James as a possibility. James is not mentioned in the book of John either. If you look it up, he's not there. He's a son of Zebedee, 
He's part of the inner circle. How do we know he's not the author? What was your answer? He's not the one who reclined on Jesus. There's a good answer. The other way we can know is because of Acts 12, verse 2. He was martyred. And he was martyred way too early to be able to write this book. So he could not be it. The only person who fulfills the requirements is John, the son of Zebedee. John must be the disciple who's writing. He must be the disciple whom Jesus loved. He must be our author. So, who is John? That's what we're going to talk about the rest of this class. Who is John? What do we know about him? What can we learn about him from Scripture? Well, he's a son of Zebedee. It's believed that after the first few chapters, his father kind of vanishes. And we only hear about his mother. It's believed that his father likely passed away. Uh, Mark 1, verse 16 says they were from Galilee. Um, he was a fisherman by trade. He worked with his father. Mark 1, 19 and 20 says they had a family business, and their business was fishing. His mother was named Mary. There's another name she's given. It's Salome. Um, this was a little confusing to me when I was looking at it. Too many Marys and too many Johns. I agree. And Jameses for that matter. It's like Grace Bible Church. We have so many Michaels. You say Michael, and it's like, which one? <laughs> um, you see Salome mentioned only twice throughout the Gospels, and every time it's used, um, it's connected to Mary, mother of the sons of Zebedee. Uh, Matthew twenty-seven sixty-one, Mark fifteen forty. So the only one, the only way I can think to reconcile this is because it says and Salome. And Salome, that conjunction and is just working to explain who the Mary is. And that's normal in the Greek. And apparently their father was really good at business. Because they were apparently very well off and had sufficient money. Um, I want to show you that. Mark 1, verse 20. Why do we think they're wealthy? This is, <laughs> that would be one reason. Uh, it, yeah, would you read that? He's got servants. They're apparently very good at their business. And their business apparently got them influence. Because not only did they have the ability to buy servants, in John 18, at the, um, the trial of Jesus, starting verse 15, now Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was the, another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest. The other disciple would be John and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. How did Peter get into the trial? He knew somebody. John had connections. Yeah. And John went to the high priest and said, Hey, let this guy in. His family had wealth and his family had influence. It's He's also likely a Jew. He knows Jewish customs and traditions. He knows the Jewish scriptures. John 2, verse 17, he actually quotes Psalm 69, 9. And John quotes not only from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he also quotes from the Hebrew text. He knows the Old Testament really well. He also knows the high priest, and the high priest would have no dealings with non-Jew. Yeah, they let him in. Rest my case. Yeah. <laughs> no, no goyim would ever be allowed in front of a high priest. Yeah, good point. Uh, John two seventeen, he quotes sixty nine nine. John twelve verse forty. Or, yeah, John twelve forty, he quotes Isaiah six. John thirteen eighteen, he quotes Psalm forty one nine. John nineteen twenty eight, he gives an allusion back to Psalm sixty nine. He knows Jewish scriptures. 
And he also... Huh? So did Luke. Yes. A lot of them did, right? Well, but I mean... Luke, yeah. Luke is arguably not uh, a Jew. Yeah. John also knows Jewish beliefs. And he assumes Jewish beliefs when he writes. He writes about the Messiah constantly. Um, I think your argument is the strongest one. You're, you're going on a rabbit trail. <laughs> Let him go. He was able He's to go in front of the priests, right? Doesn't that pretty much say he had to be Jewish? Um, I haven't seen anyone make that argument. Oh, okay. Let's move on. I'm not saying it's a bad argument. I, he's just the first one I've heard made make the argument. Yeah. So, um, I the one argument I would make counter, counter that, that he could have been a high Roman official, which would have forced the audience. Yeah. If, if he would have been a, a if he would have been wealthy, you're assuming that these guys were not taking money under the table. Yeah. We, we know that these high priests weren't exactly honest at that point, right? So, um, that would be that would be the one argument I would make contrary to that is that assumes a high priest is following protocol. Uh, John one twenty five. Um, they asked him and said to him, "Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? If it was someone else and he was not a Jew, he probably wouldn't be filling that in without explanation." He knew that Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other. John 4, verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And then he puts off on the side, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. At a minimum, he's living among a whole bunch of Jews. In John 7, verse 15. The Jews then were astonishing. How has this man become learned, having never been educated? John realizes that the education for Jews is a major deal, that having that formal education was important to them. John 9, verse 2, he talks about a sin offering, or excuse me, suffering for sin, not a sin offering. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he would be born blind. These are things that Jews would point to. He also knew about the laws concerning defilement. John 18, 28. We don't need to look at that. He was likely from Palestine. He understood the geography of that area. He names areas and locations that no other writer of the Gospels mention. Um, the Pool of Bethesda in John 5, 2. Not mentioned anywhere else. The Pool of Siloam in uh, 9-7. Luke mentions a tower next to it, but doesn't reference the actual place. And he also talks about the ravine that's in uh, the Kidron Valley in John 18, verse 1. He knows the area of Palestine. He knows the geography. He likely became initially a follower of John the Baptist. If you look in John 1... John 1, 19-51 gives a lot of details about the ministry of John the Baptist. And again, he just refers to him as John. Uh, I want to point out John 1, 35 and 36. Again, the next day, John, that would be John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Uh, da, 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 da. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. John is standing there with two of his disciples. He sees Jesus coming. He says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. And his two disciples say, see you later, John. And they walk off and go follow Jesus. So who are these two disciples? Well, we're told who one of them is. Look down at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew was one. It's believed the author was the other. Otherwise, he would have just named him. But we're never told who the other one is. I'm not 
quite sure if that's true because the other there's another account that he and his brother were out fishing with his dad and Jesus said, come follow me. And that's when he followed Jesus. Yeah, that's true. But that's when he calls him to a form of ministry. He says, come follow me. There's an official invitation. Come be, in, come be a disciple. We're going to get there. Okay. You're, you're always like three pages ahead of me. <laughs> I'm not complaining. It's It's good. John would later be called into full-time ministry. You can see that in Luke 5, verses 8 through 11. For the sake of time, we're not going to go there. And then after that, that's in Luke 5. After that, Luke, uh, Luke 6, 12 through 16, he's called as an apostle. So it's believed he starts by just following Jesus kind of on a personal level. That's his decision. He breaks away for a little while. Jesus comes back to him while they're fishing and says, Hey, come be fishers of men and calls them to the ministry, and then in Luke 6, Jesus selects his 12 apostles, and John and James are part of that group. Does that make sense? Um, I've already mentioned that. I'm not going to go there again for the sake of time. Uh, what I'm skipping over here is the inner circle again, the transfiguration, the Garden of Gethsemane, the trial... He's at the cross, the only disciple to be at the foot of the cross, John 19, 26 through 27. And he was part of a group of seven who saw the resurrected Lord. We saw that in John 21. He had a very unique relationship with, with Jesus. Um, and it was so unique that Jesus kind of had a nickname for them, for him and his brother. Anybody remember the nickname? Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. And that tells us a little bit about kind of who who John was as a person. Um, let me see. Mark 3, verse 17. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Bo Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. really should put these verses in my notes. Luke 9, verse 54. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They were impetuous. They were very zealous. And they were eager to have fire come from heaven on people. In John 9, 49, this same zeal led John to rebuke somebody because they were casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but wasn't that person was not a disciple or a follower. This same zeal in Mark 10 led him to send his mother to ask Jesus, hey, would you, um, would you let us sit on your right and left side in the kingdom? to ask for the place of honor. So throughout the gospel, he's kind of pictured, throughout the gospels, he's pictured as this very zealous, impetuous young man. He was probably a teenager. Sounds like what I would have done as a teen, so can't really fault the guy. But by the time, much later in his life, he seems to have mellowed out. By the time you get to 1 John, he's known as what? Not the apostle of thunder, but the apostle of love and his gospel his first epistle is all about love and then he does appear a few times in the book of acts i think we already looked at acts 3 uh, 1 where they heal the cripple he shows up again in acts 4 verse 13 before the sanhedrin when he and peter are on trial he shows up again in acts 8 verse 14 when he's sent with peter as a, a delegate to samaria and then in Acts 15, he's a pillar of the Church of Jerusalem. He's at the Jerusalem Council. We know that because of Galatians 2.9. Uh, Paul, writing of the Jerusalem Council, says, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John were reputed, reputed to be pillars. And there he's considered to be a pillar of the Jerusalem Church. So after the death of Christ, he stays in Jerusalem with Peter. He does ministry. He's sent out to other churches. 
we don't know how long he stays in Jerusalem. He probably has someone living with him. Anybody know who's probably living with him at this point? Guessing his mother. His mother may have been, but there was someone else that was living with him that was not his mother. Jesus' mother. Remember on the cross, Jesus said, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And tradition says that Mary went and stayed with John. There is also another tradition that they moved to the city of Ephesus, where they lived until both of them died. Tradition says Mary died in Ephesus, and John died in Ephesus. Um, That's going to become relevant, especially when we get to the book of Revelation. When did he die? And we don't have to guess on this. Did you have something? You look like you want to say something. Um, Irenaeus. Irenaeus was the disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was the disciple of the Apostle John. Irenaeus wrote this, Then again, the church in Ephesus, founded by Paul, and having John remaining among them permanently until the times of Trajan, is a true witness of the tradition of the apostles. Irenaeus says John lived until the time of Trajan. Trajan started his rule around 98 AD. So at a minimum, John lived until somewhere around 98, 99. Where did Patmos fit in then? Good question. Um, Patmos, they believe that he was exiled there for a while and then was allowed to return back to Ephesus. That's what they believe. But that gets a little harder to dice, parse out. Um, If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, um, depending on what of that you actually believe, uh, they tried to boil him in oil. Sounds kind of gruesome, but I don't know how true that is, though. It's Fox's Book of Martyrs. Some of it's really true, some of it's not so, not so much. Okay? Any questions? Comments? Now everyone's all quiet. As soon as you ask for questions, everyone's like, goes quiet. You've kind of been throwing the questions out as you went. Oh, okay. Okay, well, you you got them all out. Okay, well, let me, um, we're a little early, but that's okay, because I held you late last time. So let's, let's pray here. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this morning uh, and our opportunity to come together to fellowship, to think on your word. Uh, we thank you for the gospel of John and how it reveals the glories of Christ, and we look forward to continuing the study next week. Uh, we do ask that you would be with us this morning for our worship, that it would be pleasing and acceptable to you, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.